Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Today on Around the Coin Podcast, we have the CEO of Balanced Payments, Martin Tamizi, discussing his philosophy around pricing transparency, how Balanced is crowdsourcing their new debit card product, and how cryptocurrencies will shape international payments. Around the Coin Podcast. Welcome. Great to have everyone on. Glad to be here. Uh, Now, I figured we'll, we'll try to keep it to an hour. And uh, we laid out a few of the uh, interesting topics. I thought, um, you know, if we want to kind of dive into a lot of the balance news and what you described and talked about yesterday was really interesting. The whole vision for the podcast is to constantly bring in people in the payments industry and technology as a broad topic to cover interesting and sort of enlightening uh, uh, nuances and news that I think a lot of people would find valuable to listen to. Um, so obviously a lot of what you talked about yesterday was super interesting, um, and I'm sure Brian and Fessel would have a lot of interesting insight as well to that. Uh, so with that said, I mean, we could almost uh, dive right in. Um, last week we gave a great introduction for the, the three of us, but um, Mattin, if you want to maybe describe a little bit of your background and where you came from, it'd be great to get that perspective. All right, so I'm going to... Uh, anytime I do this, I always start off by giving my own background and then kind of explaining how 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 I got here and why we're doing what we're doing and, and going forward from there. I think that's the best way to go about it. Definitely. So I was I was born in Iran. I grew up in Maryland. Went to University of Maryland College Park and studied computer engineering. Uh, one thing that people will know about me is I don't sleep much. I'm naturally caffeinated. So I graduated in three instead of five years, moved out, um, then graduated and worked in product management for a year and a half in the U.S. and then for a year and a half in Europe. And then the summer of 2008, I moved out to the Bay Area, worked on some side projects and did some contracting for NASA Ames Research Center. That it was, um, like you and I know each other through, through Drew. Uh, Drew actually moved in with me the beginning of 2009. Um, uh, so Drew had gone to University of Pennsylvania, studied electrical engineering, taught entrepreneurship for a year in Accra, Ghana, and then came out to Palo Alto to join up with a friend of his from Penn, this is Jack Abraham who had started a company called Milo.com. So Drew moved out there. Uh, he was living with me. 
Um, I love what Maya was doing. You know, if you were looking for a camera or TV, they'd search all the stores around you and tell you what was in stock at that time and would actually tell you the prices at that moment. So I loved the idea and ended up joining as the second employee in a kind of strange role. I was the VP of business development and senior software engineer. So that meant I coded 80 to 90% of the time and then spent the rest of the time partners and retailers and so forth. I stayed for a year and I came out in March 2010. And what, what I was talking about is the importance of infrastructure. You know, I had lived in Europe. I lived in, I traveled in South America. I lived in the U.S., um, you know, born in Iran, and really understood from that perspective how important infrastructure is, whether it's communications, the industry I was in out of college, transportation, energy, waste management, or payments, how much it affects how prosperous, productive, and happy a society ideas. You know, I'd, I'd worked in banking as well, so I kind of, like when I was in college and like understood this from that perspective as well, in terms of the importance of payments and financial services. And the way that I kind of thought about it specifically was not how do I make something like slightly easier or anything on those lines, but I wanted to make it so that commerce could exist didn't happen before. Like essentially like improve, help improve the global economy in some way, like increase GDP. And I was talking to a customer uh, yesterday about this, and his marketplace is doing a few, few million a month now. And we talked about it, and you know, two years ago, what they were doing like didn't exist. And it's not as if you were, you were doing this on some other site or you were offline. It just didn't happen. And you can apply this to Airbnb, right? Like five years ago, it's not like... Airbnb, it's not like Airbnb took that business from somewhere else. It's just that people weren't staying at other people's homes in the way that they are today. And even then, they're not even really stealing that much business from, from hotels. It's really creating new business. And that's what I think is interesting. So I played around with a few different ideas. Uh, this was, again, March 2010. Uh, decided that I would just build something that I understood and people could people could use and I would use myself. Build a mobile person-to-person -person payments product, release that July 2010, got a few hundred users and reasonable transaction volume. Um, was funded by Y Combinator for the November 2011 batch. Uh, sorry, November 2010 for the winter 2011 batch. And it was at that point in the beginning of 2011 when I brought on my co-founder, Mahmoud. So that changed a lot of things for me. Uh, so Mahmoud had also gone to University of Maryland, studied computer engineering. And when I was still at Milo, I had recruited Mahmoud as the fourth engineer. So Milo sold to eBay in December 2010, and Mahmoud left, joined me as my co-founder, and this is when things kind of shifted. I was able to think more about what was changing in the industry, and I talked to a lot of companies that were doing two-sided commerce, that were marketplaces, and I tried to understand, well, what is it that, um, what is it that they were doing? Like, 
uh, specifically, like I, I try to understand, like how could they use my product? Like they have buyers and sellers on their platform. So how could I get them to use my product because they were enabling new commerce? But the, the pushback that I get is like, I love your product, but I really want something that I can integrate directly, set my own fees, and hold on to the money in between. I was pretty skeptical. I didn't understand why um, they didn't just build it themselves or use PayPal or Amazon payments until I heard the exact same thing from several marketplaces and realized that Amazon payments and PayPal had a terrible experience and it was so much more complicated than building it yourself. Right? You had to deal with all the compliance and regulatory aspects of it, whether you're a payments regulator or like how you're actually classified, holding on to other people's money. Um, the fraud component is building the robots payments infrastructure, uh, the uh, reconciliation and accounting associated with it, and so on and so on. So I realized there was an opportunity there, and I love what they were doing. Mahmoud and I built the initial version of um, our API um, in eight weeks on top of what we had, released it, got a few customers, raised a million dollars, and uh, raised a million dollars from angel investors, including SV Angel, Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb, uh, Ashton Kutcher, um, some great people in the payment space, including former Visa and First Data Executive, Brought on Drew, who was the first employee of Milo, my former roommate, as my other co-founder. The sixth person in the company was our in-house general counsel. You know, spent a lot of time just um, growing up, like spent a lot of time just focusing on the product and really spending a lot of time on infrastructure and compliance as well. And in January uh, 2012, started working with uh, J.P. Morgan Chase and Chase Payment Tech as our acquiring bank and registering as a PSP, a payment service provider. And it was around that time we really understood the model a lot better in terms of what our customers wanted and what the market was. And we built a new version of the product, released that June 2012, and we've been growing at about 25% month over month since then. And that's where we are today. That's exciting. It's an incredible story. Thank you. If I can um, ask a question, when you looked at the landscape of all of the systems that are out there, you, you presented, for example, Chase Payment Tech, a direct acquirer, you know, essentially a bank, a network, and they also have their own payment gateways, if you will. Uh, and you look at Authorize.net, owned by Visa. How do you feel today, and how did you feel back when you were forming this? how you would compare, contrast, and compete in that, in that market space? I think the difference in terms of what was available then is you, you had this spectrum of someone is going to give you like a wrench on one side, like a, like a payment tech or like an authorized.net. Um, or authorized.net maybe give you a little bit more. And then somebody on the other side that's going to give you absolutely no control like PayPal or Amazon payments. There was really nobody in between that would give you the level of control that you needed. And it's, it's, something, that we, it's something that I struggled with, right? You know, I said how the company started off by doing mobile person-to-person -person payments, and it really showed in the DNA of the company for a long time 
when we started the company, it was, it was then called PoundPay. And it went for mobile payments, and then when Mahmoud and I, like I said, we built the API in eight weeks, what we had done was just build an API on top of the existing platform. When um, somebody would go to actually make the purchase, they would be presented with a branded iframe and have to, like with our brand, then on the seller side, they would have to sign up directly through our website. Um, in the beginning, it was even that the buyer would have to enter in their phone number and do a text message confirmation. Like that's how much it was in terms of like progressing from that. But it was this idea that we were going from where PayPal was and trying to make it a little bit more configurable because that's how we were thinking about it is, oh, people wanted something like PayPal, but they just wanted more control over what existed. And the reason why I outlined that shift that we had gotten to in the beginning of 2012 and really, like the current version of the company, like where we are today, and what we released in June 2012, is the shift from are there somebody really wants something that's like PayPal but more configurable to no uh, companies now are actually fairly sophisticated they want something that's white label they have as much control over as possible but they don't want to know what's behind the scenes like they they don't want to care about the fact that we actually don't even use Payment Tech as our acquirer today right we work with Vantive and you know, we have an agreement with Wells Fargo as well, but to them, the credit card processing just happens. They don't care how we pay money out or how we do next day ACH. It just happens all behind the scenes or how the funds are held or how we deal with the compliance or, or anything on those lines. Everything else behind the scenes works. So it was this place where you had these extremes of people who wanted full control like PayPal and Amazon payments. They want direct customer relationship and all these other things and they want their whole brand and other people who they're not going to give you anything. They're going to make you work for it. Um, and we're trying to create this place where we'll give you as much control as possible to create that abstraction. Hmm. Hey, uh, Mateen, uh, I think it'd be really interesting to dive into your philosophy on transparency. I know that the payments industry as a whole just has this reputation, rightfully so, of kind of being non-transparent, you could say. Um, even at the ETA conference, uh, the payment industry conference, there's just a lot of, it's, it's very difficult to determine pricing, what companies even do, their transaction volume, and you guys almost take a radical approach in being very open and transparent. Um, I'd love to hear your perspective on what that's done for you guys and what your thoughts on that going forward would be. Yeah, absolutely. So the the, the concept of openness. Let me explain uh, what that means first. Uh, first of all, so we actually discuss a lot of our product and a lot of our pricing out in the open, um, like on in public on GitHub, on um, internet on internet forums, in our public chat room on IRC, uh, on Quora. Uh, through our blog and everywhere else. And that actually started in late 2012, uh, not because we wanted to become necessarily an open company. It actually started because I want, we were trying to create more accountability, uh, both internally and externally, for what we were working on. 
And that was really the, that was the original motivation. And as we started doing it, a lot of us started to realize as engineers and seeing other companies that are out there that this gave us the ability to have, like, communicate with everybody else, communicate with companies that were out there, um, and, like, have an open discussion about our product as well. So it's the sense of openness, um, like, it's something that I think is lacking in, in the financial services world because people don't necessarily want to talk about what's going on. Um, they don't They feel like some of the things that they have are, are like trade secrets or things that they know that they don't, that other people don't know. Um, and I kind of thought about it this way when somebody challenged me early on, and they asked me, "Well, you keep talking about these different, you keep talking about openness, but like, why aren't more people open?" And I thought about it myself, and I tried to figure it out, and I realized that you know every single one. Every single one of us that's in the payment space, a lot of people think that we know something that other people don't, right? Like Balanced is working with some bank or has some kind of structure or registered in a certain way. And to compete with us, you have to figure out those same kind of things. So in some ways, like that knowledge gives us some kind of advantage mm-hmm. over somebody else, right? Not really. Because the reality is if you look at the other companies that are out there, um, and you guys are making this even better, is that people already know how things are structured. Like, what do you lose? Like, if, if I talk about what's going on, and I create discussion, or I'm, if I'm more open, it's not my competition that's going to learn something new. If anything, it just enables me to grow, and it creates more accountability over, over what we do. Part of what we did recently that you're referring to is... Uh, pricing in pricing in the payment space in the credit card processing space especially is pretty confusing and is fairly opaque you have um, really different types of fees uh, that you pay at different levels you have the interchange fees that you pay to the acquirers you have uh, sorry the interchange fees you pay to the issuers the acquirers fees and then you have the the processors fees or PCI and everything else on those lines and of course like Stripe, Balance, Braintree, uh, just kind of bundle that together. And what we've done is then take that and say, well, we're going to create volume tiers on top of that as well. And this came from every time we would talk to different customers, people would try to negotiate, would try to get um, better pricing, which makes sense in the payments world. And as part of openness, as part of like accountability, like internally, we had set some standard pricing that, that we would follow, that we would try not to give somebody better pricing just because they negotiated better or just because we liked them better. We try to keep it as standard as possible and as fair as possible. And what had happened was I, I was negotiating with the bank at one point and I got really frustrated because I got better pricing um, because of our volume, but I couldn't figure out I couldn't for the life of me push them to the point of saying, well, at what point am I going to get even better pricing than what I have now? They just wouldn't tell me. The feedback was, well, just come back to us when you have more volume and when things have changed and we'll talk then and maybe we'll give you better pricing then. But I didn't know when or I didn't know what it was going to be, so I couldn't predict, I couldn't forecast, I couldn't do anything. It's almost like raising your credit limit for a credit card for consumers. There's just, it's sort of a subjective assessment. No way. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, I th when you're running a business, it's really difficult because you need to predict what's going on in your business for the future so that you can plan. And we just took... I got off that call and I started complaining about it. And then my co-founder, Dro, just said, you realize, you know, you're asking us to do the exact same thing when we talk to customers. We don't tell them what the volume pricing is, even, even though we have a pretty well-set formula internally. And we just tell them that, you know, we'll discuss the pricing again with them in the future. And it just seemed ridiculous. Mm. Um, we were being hypocrites. So in the sake of accountability and openness, we just took what we had already as volume pricing and made sure we had uh, formalized it and just published it publicly and just stick to it. Yeah. Brian, what do you think in terms of, I'd say, you know, Brian, you have one of the most extensive networks of typical industry payment executives and people running ISOs and all along the bank um, infrastructure. What do you think the reaction is from moving this kind of transparent direction? I think it's amazing, uh, actually, and it's it's the manifest destiny we're going to see for all sorts of payment um, processing vehicles from retail to, um, you know, internet-based. But let's see why this happened. You know, a lot of people just assume that, you know, this this um, greed and, and opaque nature developed on its own in some dark alley. It happened because if any of us were to view the interchange charts, that are produced by Visa and MasterCard circa 2014. It's going to change in April and get more complex twice a year. These charts come out from Visa and MasterCard, and they're, they're, they're cryptic for almost everybody. Uh, I know people who are experts in the payment space who vaguely understand it. Um, last week, I was talking to somebody who is, well, very well-known individual who is running a payments company, and they were fully misunderstanding a lot of the fees, dues, assessments, and interchange fee, uh, you know, uh, rate structures. So when you look at those charts and you try to normalize them, meaning you try to set a, a fixed price to a merchant, you're essentially setting up a casino. And that's a good and a bad thing. It's a good thing because it creates a single a singularity of price for the merchant. They have a, a regular known fixed price schedule. But on the other side of that, there is just like anything that's being normalized, there's going to be winners and losers. Now, here's the sad part. The sad part is, just like um, was mentioned here, is that, you know, maybe there's a secret, you know, a secret recipe out there. Maybe somebody knows something that I don't. Maybe I got a better rocket scientist who figured out pricing strategies just, just the right way. Let me tell you, nobody knows this. Uh, I, I know people who have been working with inside of, for example, PayPal for decades, you know, well, almost a de decade. And they really thought that they can create a model where they can expect how many debit cards will come in at this interchange, how many, you know, corporate cards, things like that. Nobody knows this for sure. Um, I have watched some amazingly intelligent, brilliant individuals produce models that have cost companies millions of dollars in losses. Uh, so it is, a, it's a, it's a difficult thing. So what balance is trying to do is extremely commendable. And it is doing an incredible service, but really we have to applaud to them for 
working with these complexities because it's a moving target. Uh, overnight, uh, one particular merchant could be taking 99% uh, corporate cards. And you, maybe most of us don't know what that means. What that means is that card could, in fact, be earthed. It can come in at almost 3.9%. So if your model assumed 30% of debit cards and 90% are coming in as corporate, and that's a very large customer, and they're doing potentially millions of dollars per year, you're operating in a red. And um, everybody that is normalized pricing from Square, Balance, Braintree, PayPal, they're all in the same market. And it's, it's amazing what's going on. It has to be done. But if you want to go to the source of where this all started from, it started out because in 1975, there was one price that everybody paid, whether you keyed in a transaction or you swiped it. From 1975 on to today, we have more complexity. There's 795 approximate interchange categories if you include all of the MasterCard minutiae. It boils down to much less than that. But that's what, that's what somebody in a processing venue has to deal with. Mm. And that's why merchants are frustrated, and that's why there are tiers. That's why there are all these different uh, platforms. Yeah, I think pricing is one level of transparency. And then as well as the product, I almost see pricing as the easier to be transparency. Yes. <laughs> I mean, your product is your core value. Um, uh, Mattson, if you want to dive into the crowdfunding idea, I found that fascinating um, and might end up being a trend for other startup companies, not just in payments, but all across the board. Absolutely. So let's uh, let me ex let me explain uh, more so in terms of leading up to how we even got there. In terms of what we're doing for crowdfunding for something that we're building as as a company that already exists, is uh, I talked about in late 2012 when we started doing more in terms of uh, doing more in terms of uh, actually being running the company in an open way and having open discussions. Um, something happened over 2013, um, especially in the beginning of 2013, is we would talk about doing ECH debits, right? Give somebody the ability to debit directly from someone's bank account. And a lot of people, a lot of our customers were demanding that we do it, but we pushed back pretty hard. You know, I, I said, well, this is how it would work. And we tried the economics of it and understand the risk. Uh, the pricing that we had discussed openly was to do $1 per transaction. And it was really tough. You know, here were all these people and that wanted a product. And I had even gone through and written the specifications, explained how it would work. We had discussed the pricing. And I had to go back and say, I'm sorry, but we can't do it. And here's all the reasons why. And then eventually, the conversation uh, picked up a few months later when... Um, when a couple of customers came back to me and said, well, we'll pay you more. And I said, yeah, but, you know, look at the math. And it finally got to the point of them saying, we'll pay you 1%, you know. Uh, so the, the pricing that we ended up doing was 1% plus 30 cents. And that, uh, that, at that price, like, I mean, the accountability was like, we, we had to do it. Like, it just made so much more sense if our customers wanted it I couldn't argue that, well, at this price, we can't offer this product. So we ended up building it. We released it. 
and over time we've gotten it to the point where there's we've put a five dollar cap on it because we have customers like WeFunder and Funders Club that are doing ten thousand plus uh, ten thousand dollar plus transactions, so we can make it possible for them. So this this is like a very specific incidence of that. But in many cases, we've had people requesting features and requesting services for us to have, and we've had to discuss it openly. Uh, Checks was another one. We had to explain publicly why we weren't going to support it. And then something that's come up many times over the past is the ability to deposit it to somebody's checking account using only their debit card number, right? Just take somebody's debit card. You don't ask for their account number or routing number for their for their bank account. You know, their debit card, that's something they feel much more comfortable sharing than their bank information, something they have with them and it's accessible. And um, you can verify the debit card number in real time where the bank, bank account information, you have to wait days for the customer's bank to, um, to tell you whether it's the correct information or not. So, there was discussion that going um, back and forth, and we realized like it's possible to do this. It's very difficult. You know, Square Cash essentially did something uh, like this. Um, I don't know the mechanics of how it works, how they're doing it behind the scenes, but there's ways to work with uh, like different ATM rails, and like there's many different providers that are out there, and you can piece things together to be able to to be able to do this especially if you focus only on debit cards when you're pushing money to a checking account. And we said, well, well let's figure out if people even want this uh, before, we even, before we even do it. And we went beyond just having the discussion. We decided that we would actually just create a crowdfunding campaign, put it online, and let people communicate to us that way. The difference is in this case, we want somebody to say, I'm really going to be a customer, the fees that I normally would pay for this service, I'm going to pay it up front, which will give them early access. It will give them a discount uh, on the service. And again, any contribution they make for that campaign will then just end up going directly towards the transaction fees once the service goes live. So... It was kind of interesting. We're taking a specific feature that people are saying that they want, and we're saying, okay, well, if we reach $50,000, which is actually a very low goal, we reach $50,000, and enough people are saying that they want us to create this product, then done. We'll go out and do it. Hmm. Incredible. I mean, you'd have to believe that other companies are going to adopt a very similar thing, especially when your product directly saves money, Right. I mean, it's not anything that would, it's not even a big question mark. You know, if you can explain to someone that you're going to save them money. And I think from our experience, you know, with our company, Home Hero, we accept credit and routing and send our caregivers, our supply side of the marketplace, money directly. And a debit card would be much easier. So to make it cheaper and easier, I think you guys will kill it in this crowdfunding uh, campaign. I had a quick question. Is that debit card um, just for U.S. or would it be applicable to any debit card anywhere in the world? Only U.S. debit card. Thanks for clarifying. There's a number of limitations on the systems in 
outside the United States on how debit cards work and some of the techniques that Square Cash is using in I know about now about a dozen startups uh, in stealth mode that are using similar types of mechanisms. Um, there's ups and downsides to this. Um, one of the systems that are out there, and I don't want to mention one, uh, is actually not really utilizing Brad, you can the debit. Yeah. <laughs> anybody <laughs> reads my anybody reads my core post will know what I'm talking about. Uh, they're they're using um, they're using a refunding system. Uh, which is considered, ironically enough, an unbalanced transaction. So the debit card uh, is getting a refund for a purchase uh, for a transaction that didn't take place. Very creative, very unique, uh, right? Uh, the reason why it hasn't been done before is it is relatively illegal. Um, how long it goes on, if somebody's going to be looking the other way, fine, but... Under the current system, you can't do an unbalanced transaction very long before something winds up happening from a regulatory standpoint, uh, and some of the recipient banks are already quite upset over having unbalanced transactions. You look at your statement as a, as a, a cardholder, and you see purchase refund or refund for a transaction. Well, that's interesting because you don't have another purchase to balance that out. Um, and if you're audited and you have, say, somebody paying you regularly to thousands of dollars, the auditor, and maybe in this case the IRS, is going to look at it and say, okay, you just got $10,000 this year refunded to you. Where did you get the money to make the purchase? It's going to be really hard to explain that. So really, this is where technology is, Moore's Law is moving much faster than bankers. And we're using systems in a very creative way, but there's repercussions uh, in using it that way. Now, there are ways to solve this. You know, there are really easy ways to solve it. What's shocking to me is some of these very, very large companies that are you know, moving in this direction aren't using these techniques, and I don't know why. Yeah, have you, have Brian or Fessel, have you seen other payment companies do this sort of crowdfunding uh, product move where they're essentially publicizing what they're doing and they're going to build it only if it gets funded? Because to me, it's brilliant. I mean, there's so much decision internally. I think the most difficult challenge in a startup is figuring out what you build, right? And if you get your customers to fund your product um, you know, or your feature of a product internally, that's that's huge. I think it's brilliant. I mean, I think everything is going to go this direction. I mean, let's look at all these different electronic devices. All right, I'm, I'm a Kickstarter freak, all right? And uh, I have a lot of things that I would not have purchased unless I got seduced into Kickstarter. And I'm not upset, but I mean, you know, I have seven watches. <laughs> you know, and uh, <laughs> my heart breaks to all these uh, guys. But I mean, you know, it, it's great. But I don't know. I don't know. Time may tell that we may have created a great way to bump a concept early adopters, but I'm not sure if it's long-term. Let's look at um, Ouya, uh, a game platform. I'm an early adopter of that. I'm not a game player, but I fell in love with everybody involved, especially you know the designer involved in, in the software. Um, it may be argued today that phase two, and that is the greater market, it failed. 
Now, I'm not at all suggesting that all systems, and, and I think balance is, is probably not going to fail in the greater market. I think they're going to hone and craft a product that's going to have wide adoption because its target audience is always going to be on the side of nerd them, a nerd, nerd them, if you would, you know, the nerd world, all right? Um, but general mass products, I don't know if they're going to be able to, you know, jump the chasm. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you think, Matson, you're going to stick with this approach, assuming this goes well, and roll it out for other ideas internally that you guys have? Well, we'll see. I mean, this is this is kind of a challenge, right? In the sense that, like, we're we're presenting a challenge in the sense that if if it doesn't meet the goal, then I kind of save I save myself a lot of time and never having to build it out. Uh, if this is something that people don't actually want, then yeah, you know, I I put myself out there and asked if people want us to build this and if they if they don't then that just means we don't have mm. to build it but <laughs> it's also a good it's a good excuse to not build it i know when you mentioned the checks the reason why you you know you you're not building uh uh the check checks feature is that you have to go and explain it now to all the people that you once aired out the ideas with and you know kickstarter if it doesn't get funded then it doesn't get built yeah exactly i think the other thing that's the other thing that's going to change from a crowdfunding standpoint is that, you know, Kickstarter is great and you've got Indiegogo and you've got a few other platforms, but CrowdTilt, uh, which in full disclosure is one of our customers, did something interesting. They created this platform called CrowdHoster. And CrowdHoster is actually this open source project, um, but they've taken it and they will make white-labeled crowdfunding campaigns for you. So if you're building a brand-new project, you know, if you're three people and you're starting a brand-new project and no one's ever heard of you and you don't have an established brand yet or anything on those lines, then Kickstarter works well. Or even then, like, Kickstarter creates a lot of, like, brings a lot of people to you as well. The difference with CrowdHoster is... I'm trying to drive a lot of the customers that I already know. I'm already, I'm trying to drive, like I'm going to Hacker News and a lot of the other channels that I'm already familiar with. And the thing that's actually really important to me is maintaining our own brand. So I never would have done this on Kickstarter. Right? A lot of the other platforms that exist out there, I never would have done this before. But because CrowdHoster... Um, gave us the ability to really create our own experience and maintain that company brand. I think that's what made it possible for us to have all that control. And from that, I think if anybody's going to, I think if companies are going to follow this model, it's going to be because CrowdHoster also makes that possible. Interesting. And are you guys one of the first ones to try this? So the most popular CrowdHoster campaign so far, actually, is Soylent's. And if you're not familiar with Soylent, Soylent is this energy replacement drink. Uh, sorry, this meal uh, replacement drink. So the it was YC founders. Um, you know, their their company didn't go in the direction they wanted, and they turned it around and they said, "Well, you know, we weren't we weren't eating well, so we would mix all these different powders and like formulate this drink that would give us all the nutrients and all the vitamins that we needed." And that's what worked well for them. And they wanted to see if anybody else wanted the same thing. 
they put a uh, crowd hoster campaign up. I think the goal at that time was to get to like 50 or 100K, and they ended up exceeding uh, like 1.5 million. Hmm. Um, wow. And I've created an entire company around it now. You know, I'm still waiting for my for my batch to arrive. I'm pretty excited. <laughs> That's incredible. Then I have a question uh, on your product. Do you plan to offer payments, reverse payments into debit cards as a regular offering for anyone who signs up? Uh, could you uh, could you ask again? I'm not sure I caught that question. Okay. Do you plan to offer payments into a debit card as a standard offering on your platform? Oh well, if we reach if we reach the goal for the crowdfunding campaign then yes, we'll offer it as a standard offering. What we're going to do is the people who back the project, they'll get early access and they'll get, uh, they'll get a discount as well. And as we scale it out, then we'll have it as a standard offering as well. You know, as Brian outlined, this is not being able to do this, like anything in the payments industry, um, mm -hmm. scaling it out with the partnerships and the relationships and being able to do that, a lot of that takes time as well. So, also picking the customers that that you want from the very uh, that you want from the very beginning, and being able to work with them, and knowing that they're passionate enough that you can uh, talk to them and like ask them questions about what is it that they um, like, how it should actually work. Like, this is a way to pick the first set of customers and have them support it, but to get it to the point where it's an offering that's public and available for everybody. Yeah, because I think the product has a lot of promise considering how, you know, the U.S. market is very sensitive to giving out bank account information for ACH purposes. So I think you have it right on the mark over there, very, right, very much right on the mark. Now, the last, I mean, unless, Brian, unless you have any additional thoughts there, I'd love to dive into the last sort of oddball topic. Well, yeah, I, I definitely, you know, how do you how do you see yourself fitting in with the competitive landscape um, of let's say competing systems? Um, let's call this sort of um, it's sort of a beginning of a wallet type system. Uh, would you agree? I'm not sure. What are you referring to in terms of the other the other people in the landscape? Well, you 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 have you have a lot of you know online payment alternatives, right? Uh, you certainly have PayPal on on one end, and you have uh, Amazon, obviously, on 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 the other side of this, and potentially Square moving into the marketplace. How do you see uh, the, these potentials uh, impacting? I mean, do you do you see you competing with them, or do you see it creating a whole new market? Oh, I'm not trying to create. I'm not trying to create a wallet. I mean, for, for me, what I want to do as a company is I think I, I talk about the vision of balance and what we're trying to do in the long term and uh, focus on infrastructure and, and enable new commerce. But the, some, sometimes the way internally we articulate what we do as a business on a day-to-day -day basis is we create this abstraction of shit. Right? There's all this stuff that people don't want to know that it exists, and we want to abstract it away for them. And that's kind of what the value that we create is. If anything, if anything, it's going from there being, you know, Visa, MasterCard. You know, we started off with Visa, MasterCard, Discover, 
um, and American Express has like four payment methods that we accept. And we have one payout method that we support, which is ACH. And now we've added a fifth payment method, which is bank payments, ACH, right? ACH debits. And then we're also talking about adding a second payout method, which is pushing money to a debit card. So if I think if anything, it's, I'm not trying to go down this concept of us creating a wallet, but if there is a wallet that's out there for us to be able to support as a payment method, then maybe then that's the approach that we should take. I see. So as you, you know, uh, aggregate all of this payment data on the uh, consumer side, your view is not to create a, uh, create a sort of consistent centralized repository of payments to your existing merchant base, you know, to make it easier for uh, the consumer who has used your system to make transactions uh, faster, maybe more efficient. Yeah, let me, let me answer let me answer the question. I'll answer the question in this way. Um, Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb, is one of our investors and his advisor of mine. Early on, he sat me down. Um, we were sitting down together, and he asked me a question and trying to understand my business. And he said, who would you say is your customer? Is it it's like your customer? Um, is it the buyer? Is it the seller? Or is it the marketplace? You know, and I kind of stumbled around in my answer and I said, well, you know, it's, it's kind of all three. And he's like, no, 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 no. He said, pick one. I was like, well, you know, I, I guess the, the end customer is, is the buyer. And he's like, is that your customer though? And I'm like, no, my customer is the marketplace. And he's like, great, okay. So everything you should focus on is by creating the best product for your customer, the marketplace. And at the moment, None of our marketplaces have asked us to create a product where we have a wallet or it's like a balanced wallet that somebody can use across many different places. If that request changes, then that's what we'll do. But my focus is to try to create the best product for the marketplaces that we work with, work with them. And that's one of the reasons why you know, we are white, white label in the way that we are. And let them create, um, let them create the brand, and let them create that experience for for their customers if they want, way that they want. And again, if our customers, the marketplaces, want us to to build things out in a different way, and again, we'll know, we'll know, and so will you, because it'll be in, it'll be discussed openly. Then we can, you know, rethink that. But at the moment, that's the way that it is. Interesting. A great, great uh, focal point for, by Brian to get you into that uh, mindset because I think a lot of people miss who their true customer is. So great focus. Mathieu, I had a quick question on uh, your marketplace. Since you're mostly U.S. concentric, what are your plans for expanding internationally? Because if you read through the Quora forums or you know Stack Exchange or other payment forums, you'll see there's a large huge demand for, you know, they, they literally cite names like, is there a balance equivalent in Singapore or Hong Kong or, you know, India? So do you have plans to uh, expand out to international markets? Without question. Uh, without question, I mean, we need to, exp uh, we're going to expand out elsewhere. And again, this, this comes back to this abstraction I talked about of, 
we're we're thinking about different payment methods in um, so then you have to be able to also think about being able to pay out to anywhere in the world and also working with any uh, company in the world and in the beginning I mentioned improving the global economy I didn't say improving just the US economy so it's um, like that becomes incredibly important and then the other part of it is you think about like what's I think they're like in marketplaces um, you know we're learning more and more um, but the theory some of the theories that I've heard thrown back and I haven't seen all the data behind it is that there's actually a lot of there's some asymmetry in marketplaces in terms of where the buyers are and where the sellers are um, and if anything sellers in our case are going to be are going um, for marketplaces at scale are going to be more likely to be outside of just the US or even Europe and what's referred to in some cases as brick right Brazil Russia India uh, yes. China and Korea uh, yeah Korea is the last one so that's so in my view we have to support international um, the challenge around that uh, the challenge around that, though, and you guys know, for anybody listening, is just that the the way that we work is we work with a U.S. acquiring bank, and under Visa's rules and in their structure, uh, the way that we work is we take every seller on a marketplace and we underwrite them as a submerchant. So any seller on a marketplace is a submerchant the same way that a Similar for Square that has a dongle is a submerchant for them. Right? That's the way that we work. But under that structure, it means that if we wanted to support sellers in Germany, then we would have to also work with a bank that allows us to underwrite people in Germany as merchants. So it's, and then you would also have to establish the process in place to be able to perform that underwriting and that risk evaluation as well. So that's something that's taken us time. I mean, this is one of the most painful parts for me is uh, that it is taking us so long to, to be able to get there. But at least the more pain that we go through to be able to get there, um, it is frustrating. But at least knowing that once we overcome it, that our customers will never have to think about doing the same thing. Hmm. And what, what countries are you thinking about first? What's the first three? Do you know at this point? Yeah, I mean, Canada and Europe, including the UK, are kind of a gateway in terms of a lot, making it simpler to expand else uh, into everywhere else. But like I said, you have to cover the brick countries that, that I mentioned, um, South America, uh, in general, across everywhere, um, everywhere in Europe and Asia, and just to keep expanding everywhere. I don't think there's any other way around it. Mm. I'd give some uh, free uh, advice here. Um, try Australia. Uh, as a as a great gateway country into Asia, um, I've yep. advised a number of companies to do that, and it works it works great. Well, there's another reason why there's another reason why Australia is particularly significant for us is that Australia and New Zealand are one of the are the best adopters of collaborative consumption of like anywhere in the world 
like you kind of think about like marketplaces and collaborative consumption companies succeed incredibly well in San Francisco because of because of the culture that the people have. Um, but it goes even further in Australia. Like you go to a random place in the U.S. and ask somebody if they know what Airbnb is and see how and see what they respond. Like outside of San Francisco, and then go to Australia. And I guarantee you the percentage of people that know what Airbnb is in Australia is greater than the percentage of people that know what Airbnb is in, you know, in, like, in the U.S. And, and, and not only that, there's just a wide adoption of technology on uh, a number of different age brackets that you really don't find in almost any other part of the world. I mean, um, back in 2010, when I was advising a a uh, payment startup that has a dongle, uh, and they were not going international, and in 2010, I said, you need to be international now. Um, uh, Australia and New Zealand were the gateway countries to get into Asia, and now, unfortunately, they jumped into Asia first, and getting backwards is going to be much more difficult. Canada is, a, is obvious, and uh, uh, so is South America, but... Um, uh, to really get a feel for how technology uh, systems are going to be adopted, um, I recommend uh, Australia, New Zealand. And uh, Mattine, I'd love to dive in. Last week, we had a great conversation with the three of us all about Bitcoin. And, you know, it's a very extensive topic, I know, but I'd love to hear your perspective on, have you guys talked about integration internally? Is there anything on the roadmap or anything released that I might have missed or do you see that as part of an integration plan to roll out internationally? Yeah, you missed this. We announced it two years ago. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, um, no, there's, there's, nothing that, there's nothing that you missed. Um, I, I think that there's, to, to start with though, I think there's a misunderstanding of how, of, of, of what Bitcoin even is. Um, and I think part of it is that people think about Bitcoin as a network, but Bitcoin is not a Bitcoin is not a network. Bitcoin is a currency. So I think that's where everybody needs to reframe how they ask this question for supporting Bitcoin is asking me whether we're going to support Bitcoin is the equivalent of asking is is it, as I think in some in. I think some people view asking somebody whether they're going to support Bitcoin is similar to asking them whether they're going to support PayPal. But actually asking them if they're going to support Bitcoin is more akin to asking them if they're going to support euros. And yes, you know, Bitcoin is another currency. And I certainly want to support more currencies outside of the U.S. dollars. And I want to support euros and, and British pounds as well. I think the difference and what's specific with Bitcoin is that you take the traditional payment methods and the traditional payment networks that are out there, like Visa, MasterCard, Amex, Discover, um, or other like bank transfers, and none of them, and none of them support Bitcoin as a currency, which kind of puts us as a processor in this situation of, of well, for me to support Bitcoin, you know, I can't just say I'm supporting U.S. dollars where somebody's going to mail me cash. For me to say I'm supporting Bitcoin. I don't know if, are they going to send me the money from their private wallet or where are they going to send it to me, send it to me from? So I think that's where it kind of gets to the point of where does the actual Bitcoin money come from and how does that, how does that structure ends up, 
um, end up working from. Like what end up becoming the Bitcoin payment methods? Is Visa going to start supporting Bitcoin as a payment method or is there going to be other transfer models that, that we can support with companies that, that are Bitcoin wallets or banks that end up supporting Bitcoin? Who knows? But I mean, the reality of it, the, or like, I think we'll actually know fairly soon. Um, so I won't be too dismissive. Um, I think we'll actually will know very soon. But even, and even if you talk to people at Wells Fargo, um, even, even companies, even banks like Wells Fargo are thinking to themselves at what point they have multi-currency accounts. At what point should they be denominating bank accounts in the Bitcoin currency? So, and that's really how I try to think about Bitcoin then is as a currency, Bitcoin is here to stay. Um, as a network or as a payment method, I don't think that there's any standards or I don't think there's any um, payment method that's had mass adoption for uh, for Bitcoin yet, but uh, we'll find them and we'll work with them. Do you see, um, do you see Bitcoin um, challenging the existing payment infrastructure at some future date? So, so again, I, I think that the the difference is that I, I don't think that Bitcoin actually I don't think that Bitcoin challenges um, I don't think that Bitcoin challenges Visa, right? I think Bitcoin is another currency. The companies that are created by supporting Bitcoin as a currency, those are the ones that are going to challenge Visa. But you know, and it, it, that's sort of a de facto because obviously, if the companies that are creating value around it, the, the Bitcoin is just a vehicle. I guess what I'm trying to get at is, um, if you just see it as a currency and not the uniqueness of the um, no barriers to moving money. I mean, there are significantly less barriers to move the money around when it's in a Bitcoin or a uh, cryptocurrency, algorithmic currency. And um, and some of the barriers are the cost to um, acquire a transaction. For example, uh, it would be ridiculous for you to use existing payment infrastructure uh, to move around uh, a nano transaction, something fractionalized pennies, or a microtransaction pennies. Um, do you see that there is a future in utilizing um, payment in such a manner? Well, where are you going to store your bitcoins? I guess that's why companies like Coinbase and a few others are rapidly building, now approaching seven hundred fifty thousand wallets. Um, you know, it, it's it's inordinately difficult for the average person to download a blockchain for a, a local wallet. I mean, uh, right now, Bitcoin blockchain download for a wallet might take seven days on a typical uh, computer. Litecoin, about three or four days, uh, maybe five days. You know, it, it's um, it, it's going to be online wallets simply because of the complexity of the current uh, way wallets are being built and the blockchain. So I would say you're certainly going to be seeing it on online wallets, uh, certainly for the near and midterm. Right. So, so then to go back to your question of it's incredibly easy to move, it's incredibly easy to move bitcoins between people. Yes, and I, I agree with you. You know, if I have, you know, if I have a bitcoin on on my laptop and I want to send it to and I want to send it to you 
to your private wallet, then it becomes incredibly easy to do to do so from an infrastructure standpoint. But realistically, you know, I don't want to store it on I don't want to store bitcoins on my laptop. I'm going to be storing it in some wallet. So again, it's going to go back to the same structure of there's going to be a a wallet or you know a wallet is basically another word for a bank um, that is going to allow me to have an account denominated in bitcoins that I can transfer to somebody else that has another account. And again, it should be independent of it should be independent of uh, what that account is of like where that other account is located, right? So I think this is what ends up changing is you're, you're talking about the things about, about Bitcoin. I think to think about it, to think about what's revolutionary about Bitcoin and you think about what's different or really any kind of, any kind of change that's going to happen at the scale of really affecting us, um, like over, over decades, especially is not how is Bitcoin going to change your life or my life or how is it going to change our generation? Because the reality is like things like anonymity and things like that, if you apply it to how are my children going to be using Bitcoin, my children are not going to be thinking about, you know, this is a anonymous transaction or this is listed publicly or things like that. They're going to be thinking to themselves, what does this enable me to do? How is this more convenient than what I could do otherwise? Right? And I think if you think about it inside of, if you think about it inside of that framework, then what you realize is that the banks in the U.S., like anybody who's trying to create a wallet, anybody who's trying to do create any kind of like payments infrastructure, they're banging their head against the wall because right now they have to transfer money over the SWIFT network for wires, ACH, over like Visa and Mastercard, over these kinds of things. And what Bitcoin does is that they can transfer that money uh, directly. Like they can transfer that money directly themselves, um, and then as a result of that, all of the people, as a result of that, you still end up having to, um, but you still end up having to have a place where you store the money. But this is kind of interesting. Your 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 challenge to me is getting me to think about it a little bit differently because if you don't, if you're not reliant on something like ACH to actually as a platform, essentially ACH has become decentralized where you can have one bank transfer to another uh, without having to go through some centralized, some centralized location um, or central authority. Um, but even then, I think that removing that central authority is less about creating power between two individual people of transferring money and more about making it so that people can create something on top of that. Well, you know, I think the the value of all algorithmic currency, doggy coin, Litecoin, doesn't matter. And I believe that all of them will have a valid use at some point. I really don't see an end to it. I think the big value is the ability to send it um, in values and amounts that are maybe ridiculously low and maybe higher. But I think it's really the low dollar amounts that is what most people are missing. And not only that, I don't believe, you know, cryptocurrency was designed by maybe, let's call, 
you know, crypto punks, right? The idea was I'm going to create an anonymous uh, a payment vehicle. It's not really anonymous. Uh, you know, it's a, it's got a public right. ledger. Everybody can read what's going on. Um, at some point in time, the, the cryptology will be broken and everybody will know who everybody was. Uh, so there's no true anonymousness. What it really is doing now, it's taken on a life of its own, is you can start creating industries and facilitating ideas because yes. of the fact that there isn't a centralized uh, gatekeeper who is taking money out of the middle just merely by so so-called creating a currency if you will i mean in a sense once you move money into visa and mastercard or debit or even checking account you're you're sort of creating a, a form of currency we don't see it that way but as it's traveling electronically it's really not dollars it's an abstraction Bitcoin is exactly the same way. It's just hard for us to sort of take a grasp on that. It's all abstractions. It's all moving electronically. The difference is the way it moves and the cost structure to process that payment. Now, I, I don't b happen to believe that all future payments in Bitcoin are going to be from the buyer to seller. I believe that they're going to be facilitators in the middle, but they're going to create a different value proposition than the current facilitators are today. Um, and it's hard for you know, incumbents and legacy companies, even startup legacy companies, because, I mean, the, the rate of change is going to be so quick. I'm talking to 16, 17, 18-year-olds who already see this vision of, well, yeah, I could, person-to-person uh, -person payments, yeah, that's sort of old school. Uh, I more see a, a, a way that I can, you know, enrich somebody who's got a cool idea, who's got a cool meme, a cool picture, and to be able to do it very quickly. And we're seeing that organically happening with DoggyCoin. Uh, again, the whole thing is uh, it seems to be a farce to people, but there's an, an incredibly vi vibrant and rich culture of tipping that's taking place. We're calling it tipping today because that's our relativity. But it's going to be a much more complex environment where people can get enriched. And I think all payment vehicles are going to be influenced by this. It's going to be the tail wagging the dog. Yeah, what's kind of interesting is that uh, Dogecoin, so is Dogecoin is actually what got me to the tipping point of fully understanding uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general, is that the Bitcoin community, there's such a political and like dogmatic drive to how people think about Bitcoin that it sometimes makes it difficult to actually just cut through that and think about the use and what it really means. And Dogecoin, people don't, take it seriously in the same way um, it is so much fun and the community is so embracing of, mm. of everybody that as a result of that it's only like it, it, it in my opinion it's only been as a result of like dogecoin that i've really been able to step back and say oh that's how it's supposed to work <laughs> as opposed to as opposed yeah, to people you need thinking to... about like bitcoin's gonna top yeah you need someone to break the ice right and yeah. and uh, that, that's exactly that's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's like you, you like the, the you, Wright brothers were going to you know create U.S. U.S. airlines, but they they broke the ice, and then other companies jumped in and precisely airplanes. Yeah, and and, I, and I'm carrying the doggy coin phrase. I'm sorry, I'm I'm of that uh, nature. So and now, uh, yeah, <laughs> listen. At, at, at this point, 
what we're doing is it's just the way the internet developed. I remember in the early '90s when I was on, you know, BBSs and 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 early internet devices. People just didn't get it. Say, what's the whole thing? Well, I could send an email. So write a letter. You know, call somebody on the phone. And we're in that same very very uh, infantile phase of, of of these currencies. So we can see what's developed you just, around that. You just, you just said it, by the way. You just yeah. said it right, by the way. So. Uh, um, what is, uh, let, me, um, let me ask you this question then, I'm kind of turning things around now, is you have ACH, which is practically free in the U.S., and then you have, have Visa, uh, which as we discussed is like very expensive. Why, why is Visa, why are the card brands and those networks so much more expensive than ACH? It's very simple. They were established in the 1960s when communication costs were significantly more higher. Uh, last week I talked about my almost $30,000 phone bill for one month, which would now cost me about $12. I mean, that 80, 1980s phone bill is a heartbreak to me, but that's more right. law. That's yeah, more no, no, I, I understand that, but what is the value that Visa, what is the value that Visa creates, right? Well, the, the value is that they're a credit card. See, this is the thing that we all tend to lose sight of. One of the biggest draws to Visa and MasterCard is the very unsexy side of the payments business, and that is collecting debt and, and, and establishing a relationship uh, where you can reasonably assume that somebody's going to pay their bills. Even a debit card, even a debit card is a pledge uh, to pay money because most debit cards without a PIN number are, in fact, a credit vehicle. Uh, you know, let's let's call it signature debit. You don't necessarily have to have a hundred dollars in your checking account when I go and and, and spend a hundred dollars on the internet with my debit card. I just better have that money, more or less, in my uh, checking account at the end of the month, or I pay right, a balance so, fee. So, so we're okay. So let's let's take it let's take it one step further. From a merchant standpoint, from a merchant standpoint, I can accept Visa or I can accept ACH. From an ACH standpoint, if I debit some, if I debit money from someone's bank account, I don't actually know until the next day whether I'm going to get that money. Exactly. And in fact, and in fact, there's two business days after that where the customer's bank can come back and say, "Whoops, sorry, we messed up," and that's permitted inside of inside of the the NACHA, inside of the HCH rules. But in the card brand world. Somebody goes to checkout in real time. You get a contractual guarantee that you will get this money, right? You have this guarantee of seven well, days that you will get this money. Well, you know, repudiation on all these electronic forms of payments we're talking about is is possible. I've seen repudiations on ACHs uh, up to three years later. Uh, I've seen checks written on doors. You I can I can write a I, I can my my dying wish I can write a check right now on a door and a bank has to accept it. Um, as far as electronic transactions, uh, a Visa and Mastercard um, a transaction can result as a chargeback as far as two years also. Now typically it's six months, but there are situations where I've seen over thirty years of being in payments where I've seen chargebacks rankle back uh, two years later. And let me give you an example of how. Right. So, if, I'm, 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 well, hold on. Let, let me just explain how bad this is because a lot of people don't understand this. Let's just say I'm a high roller that just went bankrupt, 
and I tapped out all of my credit cards to the tune of, say, $100,000. And let's say between Chase Bank of America and Wells Fargo, they've spread it out. Do you know what happens? And this is sad. Chase, Wells Fargo, and Bank of America might go and charge back all of my transactions I did the last three months. Now, does it mean that I didn't legally do a transaction? No, I, I went to the merchant. I went and got uh, a computer at the Apple store. But all of a sudden, Apple gets a chargeback from Bank of America that says that $3,000 purchase is now in question. You know, want, want to know why they're doing that? Because it's the hot potato. The, the, uh, the card issuer doesn't want to be liable for another 3000 If They can take $3,000 off the bankruptcy proceeding and throw let's the hot this, potato. To, yeah, let's, to, let's, let's pull this back, let's pull this back, sure. back to Bitcoin, though. This, okay. is the way, this is the way that we got into this conversation. The reason why the reason why I brought it up in terms of in relation to in relation to Bitcoin in terms of those things is that the value that Visa and Mastercard and the car brands have created is that I can go make a trend I can make a transaction and then there's a real time guarantee that I will get the money. Like I agree with you that the disputes methods afterwards that it can be reversed, but I do all at least know that I'm going to get I'm going to get the money. Everything after that is like is fraud or, or something on those lines of whether the money's gonna go is going to go back. But at least I know that you have that money um, sure. at that point and I know who you are. With an account number, routing number from a bank, I don't even know whether the account number is correct, much less know if the money is there. So in that sense ACH is ACH is practically free, but it's not very valuable to me during a checkout process. Where for Visa and MasterCard it's very expensive, but it works very well during the checkout process. Is Visa and MasterCard like overly priced in the U.S. versus everywhere else in the world? Like, without question. Like, there's all sorts of other reasons why why it's expensive. But that's that's where it's created value. That's interesting. What what, what, what Bitcoin what Bitcoin changes is that for for somebody who's trying to make that payment to trying to make that payment happen, then it's again. It's it's not going to be about us, using Bitcoin directly. It's somebody can't disrupt. Somebody can't disrupt Visa. Like you can't disrupt Wells Fargo and Chase because you have to be of a certain size to be an issuer or an acquirer on Visa. And if you're going to be a real bank, then you've got to be uh, as an issuer, like as an at least an issuer for a consumer standpoint. On, on Visa or MasterCard. And then you can't build Visa or MasterCard because then you have to, like, you have to create that infrastructure to be able to do so. What Bitcoin does is that you can create a wallet and you can jump on board and you can transfer money to anybody else who has a wallet or anybody else who's a bank and without having to skip all of that. And what I'm getting to is like the banks that exist today the banks that exist today are going to be able to take advantage of of Bitcoin without like without needing real time like ACH that like everybody is demanding for like real time ACH like that's exactly what like the Bitcoin like mm. protocol enables for of people course, to do right. it. Absolutely. And that's that's what I'm getting to is that it erodes the value that Visa or MasterCard create by creating this real-time system that they've had for so long where people would use ACH if ACH was real-time, but it's wow. not. 
But Bitcoin is. You do have that guarantee that you're going to get the money. And there's That's, no rep there's no repudiation. Yeah. I mean, I send a Bitcoin transaction. It's done unless somebody within Coinbase, if I'm sending from one wallet to another, they decide to become a mediator. But That's I, interesting. I, 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 I will bet. Okay. All right. All right. I, I do $1,000 in cash. And there's no repudiation. <laughs> oh, oh no, no. I, that's I, I that's what you it, just said to me. That's no, no, what you no. just I, said I, to me. I think I think it's very likely that you're not going to see repudiation. But if if you grow a large enough uh, number sure. of wallets and you grow a large enough number of merchants, and one could demonstrate extreme circumstances where there was a, a criminal activity. I think it's going to be incumbent upon that wallet. I'm not saying Coinbase particularly, but we saw what happened with inside of PayPal's economy. It, you can learn a lot from that. It's not, it's not pretty. There's going to be times when somebody g received payment for something and something wasn't done. And yeah. if they're a big enough uh, noisemaker within the community, they might be able to get repudiation. Whether it's systematically implemented I don't know, but I, I certainly think this is going to happen. Some regulator is going to try to do that in the United States. There's one thing that I want to make very clear um, that, that I want to make sure that I get across, which is that saying that, you know, Faisal, saying that you're going to give me one Bitcoin is the equivalent of you saying that you're going to give me $800 in cash. That's a non-reversible transaction. That's a real-time transaction. That's an anonymous transaction. All these same things that exist. The difference is now you can do it electronically. If you're talking about people using Bitcoin for commerce, the moment you talk about doing that, then everything in terms of disputes, everything in terms of creating some kind of a network, everything in terms of having like bank accounts and wallets and things like that, all of those are going to exist. But it's now all going to be real time it's not going to have any of the historical costs of how it's going to work um, so it makes a huge difference but i think that for us to innovate i think for us to innovate properly with bitcoin like for for me to really appreciate bitcoin i had to get away from all of the politics and everything else by understanding dogecoin for com for people like us to innovate in Bitcoin now, we have to get away from, we have to accept that Bitcoin is just, is, is a currency and a great one in terms of how it's structured, and then think about how we can re-envision the infrastructure that we have in terms of banking and networks and things like that on top of a currency that supports things that a U.S. You know, dollar does not. Hmm. Great points. So. Great points, absolutely. absolutely. Metin, you were our first guest and a much worthy one, so I think it's been really exciting for us to have you on. I want to thank you for taking the time. Well, thank you. Thank you for taking the time, and thank you for having me. Definitely. All right, guys. Take care. Bye. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a world. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.